Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're continuing our preparation for the day of Pentecost. And um, as I've, I think I've shared each Sunday, um, in the past I've always gone, we really need to talk about Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. And then before I know it, it's the day of Pentecost, and I'm not ready. So this year we've started early. Um, this is like Advent for Pentecost. I'm not sure if you can put those words together, but that's what we're doing. Um, uh, the day of Pentecost, for those that don't remember or don't know, it's um, 70 or it's seven weeks after uh, Passover, so it's 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, we started this journey a couple weeks ago um, by focusing on the person of the Holy Spirit, asking the question, just who is the Holy Spirit? And we observed that the Holy Spirit is God. He's not a shadow of God. He's not a reflection of God. He's not anything, but he is God. He is person. We say he, not because the Holy Spirit has gender. He's not male, but he's not it. He's person. And then we noted the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of the people of God, both individually and corporate, continually present. There's no time when he is not there. And then last week, we looked at the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in particular, the earlier parts of the Old Testament, and we made some general observations. And I want to really clear on that. But those observations we made last week were, were general. You never want to put God in a box. It's always a really dangerous thing to do. You know, use like God always or God has. You know, if God wants to make absolute statements, he can make absolute statements, right? In his word, there are absolute statements. He can make those. But last week, we made some general observations. And what we saw last week was this phrase, came upon. That again and again, when the Holy Spirit is being made present, when he's making himself present in the events of the Old Testament, this expression, he came upon, was the normative description of the Holy Spirit's work. And if you recall, we noted there was three different ways that was said. That he came on like a garment, or he came upon like someone pursuing, or even, you know, like an animal pursuing something. Or like, you know, financial blessings can come upon a person. And in that, we, note, we made, again, some observations that it was external. The Holy Spirit appears as external to people and comes upon people. There's not a direct personal engagement. It's purposeful to a specific end, and it's occasional. There when the occasion needs it, and then evidently not there or not as strong, even though we know the Holy Spirit is there. Now, there were exceptions. We noted that. David is an exception where certainly there was a personal, ongoing uh, intimacy that David had with the Holy Spirit. But that's the exception. Now, the reason we took the time to do that, the reason we're doing that, is to help us understand the mental outlook of those early believers, including the followers of Jesus. We sometimes forget, I'll never forget, I was teaching a class once, and I was referring to John the Baptist, and I mentioned John the Baptist ministering out of an Old Testament economy, and I could see the students were laughing. because. And finally I, heard, I saw one of them say with, with his lips, he doesn't know John's in the New Testament. Yeah, I do know that John the Baptist is in the New Testament, right? But at the time John the Baptist was ministering, the Old Covenant was still a covenant that was in effect. You know, the, Old, the New Testament, does, the covenant that we refer to as the New Testament doesn't start with Matthew chapter 1. 
It starts with the crucifixion and the resurrection. So all those events through the Gospels, they're still in the Old Testament economy, although it's in the process of changing. So we want to get into the mindset, if we can, the mindset of those believers up through the followers of Jesus, right? And, and the reason we want to do that, we want to get their mental outlook, their assumptions, is that, frankly, we don't always appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we certainly don't appreciate all that the day of Pentecost meant, because we take so much for granted. Well, one way to get around that is to get into their mindset. Think the thoughts they were thinking, if we possibly can, so that when we read Jesus saying things about the Holy Spirit, it hits us the way it would have hit them. Like, say what? No, you must be kidding. Those kind of reactions, which would have been normative for them. Get their mental picture, understand their assumptions, and that will help us understand and appreciate what happens going forward. So with that kind of a goal in mind, uh, let's go ahead and look at our text this morning. Luke chapter 1, uh, you'll recognize it from, of course, the Christmas story. It's about the priest Zacharias and his wife. We'll start in verse 8. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it will be he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Father, thank you for your word as we look to it, Lord. We want to hear from you, Father. We don't want the thoughts of man's imagination. We want to hear your voice speak to our heart from your word. Help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we consider this passage of Scripture this morning and some others that will follow after it, we're going to find a radical change in the works. A very radical change from what we saw last week. Something that I don't think any of these people saw coming. Now that change is not going to be like flipping a switch. There's going to be a progression of events. Um, but it's going, to be, it's going to be big. right? The Holy Spirit... Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord would, in His presence and ministry, move from what was primarily outward, non-relational, and occasional or situational, to something that is internal, absolutely relational and personal, and permanently ongoing in relationship. 180 degree change in those things. So let's look at the text, see what's going on, see what changes take place, and then we'll kind of move forward from there. So the account begins with something that's very normal. Normal life situation moves to some normal spiritual things. We might not think of them as normal, but actually they are. Um, to some very not-so-normal things. Uh, we have a priest by the name of Zacharias. He and his wife are without children. 
advanced in age. They want children, they don't have them. That's a real and very painful situation. It happens to people all the time. Very real, very painful, not unusual at all. What's especially challenging for Zacharias, though, is he's a priest. First of all, in that culture, it is especially important. It is expected that families would have children. As a priest, quite literally, part of his job is to have children. He's to have sons so they can be priests because there's nowhere else priests can come from. It's not like you sign up to be one. You've got to be the son of a priest, right? He's to have daughters because priests are expected to marry priests' daughters. So there's all this extra pressure on them to have children. That's real and not at all unusual, right? Got this tremendous burden they're carrying. In verse 8, we read that Zacharias is performing his usual priestly duties. Now, I know that sounds kind of odd to us. We're not priests, but there were usual normative priestly duties. Now you think, well, what would that be? I mean, how many people does it take to, you know, slit a calf's throat and stick it on the altar, right? Well, there were actually a whole lot of things that had to be done. Remember we talked several weeks ago about the Temple Mount, how big it was, this massive structure that, that Herod had created, like 20 football fields, and they had a lot of stuff going on up there. Yeah, you have the usual offerings, you know, animals coming in. Every animal had to be inspected by a priest. A lot of work. Um, every animal had to be slaughtered by a priest. Every animal had to be skinned. And there was a specific way they had to slaughter the animal so that the animal didn't suffer any more than was necessary so that it bled out quickly because the blood, of course, was extremely significant. So a priest, a qualified priest, had to supervise all of that you know, all the way through the process of making the offering, and then what do you do with the stuff left over? You know, how do you get it out of the temple? All that had to be supervised by a priest, right? There were temple offerings. There was the treasury. Somebody has to count that stuff. Somebody has to put that in a secure place and watch over it. Somebody has to monitor how that money is spent. Virtually everything that would be done in a community had to be done within the environs of the temple, and if a priest wasn't doing it, a priest had to supervise it because they were extremely worried. You know, Herod's construction work was still going on. You still got stonemasons doing their job, right? Well, if you've got a stonemason doing his job, you got a priest watching him. You know, because the last thing you want is your stonemason taking a smoke break and, you know, flicking ashes on the temple grounds, right? That couldn't happen. So there was a wide range of, of tasks that priests had to do. And so they, it was like a week on, week off kind of a thing, and they would come on to their shift, and they'd be assigned these various duties. Well, one of the extra duties that would crop up, that's all normative stuff for a priest, right? One of the extra duties was, oh, by lot, it's your turn to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, that was just once a year, but into the holy place and offer incense. Normative stuff. This particular case, Zachariah's name comes out. So today he takes the, the incense in, to put it on the altar of incense. A lot of people outside praying. Everybody's waiting for him to come back out. Normative stuff. Everything is usual, right? Nothing at all out of the ordinary. Verse 11, an angel appears and speaks to Zacharias about the situation regarding his wife and not having a child. Unusual. Doesn't happen every day. 
but not totally off the wall. I mean, there's precedent. There certainly is Old Testament precedent for this kind of thing, the whole Abram and Sarah thing. So this is not completely, you know, again, off the wall. Everything through verse 14 is your not normal, but certainly acceptable, spiritual, supernatural, miraculous stuff. Right? It's like when we pray for somebody that's sick, right? You pray for somebody that's sick, and they get healed. Be honest and admit you're surprised. All right? Because it doesn't normally happen, but it does. Right? So even though it's spiritual or supernatural, if you prefer that word, that isn't the best word, but if it's in that realm of things, it still falls within that which is understandable. There's a box in your brain to put, there's a filing place you can put that event, right? So everything that's happened so far, even if it's like, oh my God, there is an angel talking to me, he's talking to me about my wife and my child, there's still a place in Zachariah's head he can put this conversation, right? He's got a way he can handle it, right? Verse 15, it continues. It's still within that really unusual but not totally weird kind of a thing. The angel tells Zacharias, your son, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a great man of God. Okay, good with that. Uh, he will live his life under a vow. It's a reference back to number six, the Nazarite vow. Okay. Not what he was probably thinking his son would do if he ever had a son, but certainly within the realm of understandable, I can work with this, right? Everything is unusual but acceptable in terms of understanding up until midway through verse 15. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Hold the presses. Say what? Filled with the Spirit. That's unique. That is not the external kind of thing that we're used to having going on, right? That's just filled. That's internal. And it will happen before he's even born. Now wait. The Holy Spirit, who normally comes on externally, you know, coming on, is now going to be internally filling. And it's not only going to be internally and filling, it's going to be before he's even born. So now it's going to be intimate and personal in his life while he's inside. It doesn't get much more up close and personal than this. This is brand new. This is brand new. And Zacharias has got no place to put this. There's, there's no file folder that says Holy Spirit filling before even born. Brand new. Totally new. Completely extraordinary. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Nothing in the spiritual history of the nation could have prepared Zacharias for that simple phrase. The Holy Spirit, whose presence was normally external, will be internal to this child and internal while the child is still internal to his mother. The spirit whose presence was not primarily relational will permeate the very being of this child, even before birth. Now he's likened to Elijah, or the ministry that he will have is likened to Elijah. Well, in one way it's very different. Elijah didn't have Elijah's ministry until he was an adult. 
John, this child's going to have it. He's already got it before he's even born. Elijah prophesied to the northern tribes when Ahab was king. And his ministry is marked by two, two things. Number one, an extraordinary degree of success. The power and the authority with which Elijah spoke is unparalleled in the Old Testament. And number two, as far as immediate results, he failed. Or we shouldn't say he failed, his ministry failed. His job was to call the people back to repentance and prepare the way. It didn't happen. The nation continued its ungodliness. Of course, in truth, that really wasn't the effect they were after. The effect of his calling was to set a model for another one who would come, and in that he was an absolute success. He set an example for the one whose calling, whose coming would indeed prepare the way for the Lord, and that would be this child. So this child is going to fulfill the model that Elijah had established. Elijah's greatest accomplishment was to point to the one who would follow. It had been a tradition within Judaism since the time of Malachi in the 5th century B.C., that Elijah would return to announce the coming of the Messiah. Well, now there's a change happening in the, in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, there's a consistency. There's something that hasn't changed, and that's the message. Make ready a people for the Lord. There's a consistency. At the same time, there's this undercurrent of change that's going on. So the message continues. There's continuity but the means have drastically changed. Now, I said last week that in the first few chapters of Luke, the Holy Spirit's presence in ministry is seen repeatedly, and we'll see the change as we look through it. So we're going to go just through a few verses here really quickly. Uh, still in chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. Again, we know these verses from the Christmas story. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? He's just told her she's going to have a baby, although she's never been with a man. How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's Old Testament terminology, external. And the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That's new. A complete engulfing of the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's, it's kind of a transitional thing. Element of the old, element of the new. And for this reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Flip over to verse 41 of chapter 1. Now we're talking about Mary visiting Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, internal. Actually, physically, internal to her. The response of the baby to Mary's voice Mary is described as being, I'm rather, Elizabeth is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Verse 67 is the birth of John the Baptist. John is born, verse 67. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now we're moving more into the New Testament model, more into the Holy Spirit's internal activity, working within the man. Chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. They brought Jesus into the temple. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Old Testament perspective, external, upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Do you get the occasional or functional nature of what is happening? It's very specific, more of that Old Testament model. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now he's actually moving in the power of the Spirit, moving more towards the New Testament model. Chapter 3, verse 16. Talking about John the Baptist baptizing people. Start at verse 15. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ. And John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is mightier than I, that I'm not unworthy to tie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the enunciation of the change. This is where the change gets spelled out. The presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the person of God will move from something that is external, is occasional, is to a purpose, will now move to something that is likened to a complete and total life-changing immersion. And as I've mentioned before, the word that's used for baptize is the word for death. Coming down, going down in the water, we die. Coming out, we are born again. So it's a complete life-changing immersion experience. This is John announcing, hey folks, here's the change. This is a declaration of the change coming. This, by the way, is specifically what was referred to in Acts chapter 1. This proclamation by John, right? In Acts chapter 1, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Jesus, we read this. It said, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's Jesus articulating that the change that is coming. John chapter, or rather Luke chapter 3, verse 22, is Jesus at the baptism in the Jordan. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out from heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended. Now this looks, at least at first glance, like we're back on the Old Testament economy, external. But note the addition of the physical, bodily representation of the Holy Spirit. What is being made clear here is that the Holy Spirit, even as he is at this point present in the life of Christ, is still physically separate. Separation of the two persons is the implicit point being made here. So in these first chapters of Luke, Luke is, is, is laying out a tremendous amount of truth about the ministry of the Holy Spirit moving forward. Chapter 4 is where I find it gets most especially interesting. Chapter 4, verse 1, and this is right after the baptism. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, internal full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now Jesus is moving from baptism out into the wilderness where he'll be tempted for 40 days. Okay, Come down to verse 14. This is after the temptations have occurred. Jesus has successfully resisted them all, shown himself triumphant. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. 
and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. So now Jesus is ministering in the power of the Spirit following his baptism and his experience in the wilderness. Verse 17. So back up to verse 16. He's returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of Isaiah was handed to him. So the ruler of the synagogue picked up the scroll of Isaiah. He made that choice and handed the scroll to Jesus, or he set it on the table from which they read. And then it says, and he, that is Jesus, opened the book, the scroll, opened the book, and found the place where it was written. Jesus deliberately went to this part of Isaiah. And this is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are downtrodden, and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What did Jesus just do? He said, you hand me the scroll of Isaiah, I'm going to tell you what's going on. You pick the scroll, I pick the passage. I'm telling you what's happening right here. You were looking for the Messiah? Notice what he says yet. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Say what? He's announcing this is it. The Messiah you have looking, or have looked for is right here. Based on the scroll you handed me that I picked out in red. Jesus speaking, led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, chooses that passage to read. There are roughly a dozen references to the Holy Spirit between the conception of John the Baptist and this moment. Standing in the synagogue, having been handed the scroll of Isaiah, finding and reading from the text which he chose, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This prophecy is fulfilled. So what do we conclude from that whole arc of, of information we've just been given? Here's what I would suggest. The Holy Spirit was an essential participant in the ministry of our Lord from its very beginning. Even before his conception, at John's conception, come right through the incarnation up to and including the crucifixion. You know, we tend to think, I've certainly heard it said, that the Gospels are all about Jesus. And then we come to the book of Acts, and that's where the Holy Spirit shows up. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus was completely dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning of the Gospels. Where the Gospels are about Jesus, they're about the presence and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yes, it is true, as is often said, it, when we're looking at the book of Acts, is everything that the Holy Spirit did in the book of Acts points at Jesus. That is absolutely correct. 
every manifestation of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament as well always points to Jesus. But everything Jesus did was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. The relationship is absolute. Jesus was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. His conception, his identification in the temple and at baptism, his sustaining power through temptation, his direction in life and ministry, his power. Jesus demonstrated a complete daily dependence on the Holy Spirit. And that's hard for us to grasp because we're so comfortable with the idea of Jesus doing miracles. Of course he does miracles. He's Jesus. Doing miracles is his job. We're comfortable with that, right? we got a box for that. But our Lord himself, and the text confirms that he was careful to show that he did not minister simply out of his own power. Jesus did not wake up in the morning with a half a dozen miracles in his back pocket to pull out and use at his discretion. No. Every miracle, everything he said or did was done out of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that is where our understanding should start. And it's an absolute thing. We need to get this. I mean, how do we make the Christian walk work? I know there's plenty here that were told and certainly tried, well, you need to do this and you need to do this and you don't do this and you don't do this. And here are the rules. Follow the rules. You'll do fine. Anybody ever find that worked? I've never found anybody that found that really worked, right? Well, I guess I, I have found a couple. They were delusional. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? How often are we reminded that our real job is simply to place ourselves at his disposal and let him work out his power, his righteousness, and his plan through us? Because that is the plan for success in the Christian walk. You know, one of the things, I've already read the text once. One of the things that Jesus told the disciples, Acts chapter 1, before he ascended, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Wait. Why? Why did they have to wait? Were they not qualified? I mean, they had, some of these guys have been with Jesus almost every day for three years. They've heard what he had to say. And in, in all likelihood, they had heard it often enough, they probably could have fed it themselves. They have lived like he has lived. They ate what he ate. They went where he went, slept where I mean, every, they've, they've seen his style of living. You lived with somebody for three years. You know him pretty good. They've learned, I think, about all that they were going to learn by just observation. They've listened to his teaching, observed his method, watched his habits. They've even done miracles themselves. Remember, he sent the 12 out. They did miraculous stuff. He sent the 70 out. When the 70 came back, they said, even the demons are subject to us. That's pretty heady stuff. You walk around with demons trembling at your word. You start thinking, you got to figure it out, right? Jesus said, no, wait. Wait. Because they weren't ready. Even with all they had learned three years with Jesus, they were not ready. Hmm. 
They weren't ready for the size of the task. You're going to take the gospel to the whole world. Okay. They're not ready for the, for the force of the opposition they will face. They had seen opposition, but nothing like what they would see. They weren't ready for the obstacles. They weren't ready for the, their own internal struggle with the carnal nature, which continues. We struggle with that every day. They weren't ready for the simple logistics of it all. I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, right? There were how many people there in the upper room? I know we're getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves a couple of weeks. There were 120 people the morning of the day of Pentecost in the upper room. 120 followers of Christ. Now, if we take the chapter at its natural reading, there were how many people there that evening? 3,120. So I want you to imagine yourself showing up here next Sunday with our usual group here and 3,000 people outside. Is that a logistical problem? It is for Sherry. She's thinking, I didn't make enough food. <laughs> and I don't know if I can, you know. Here's the even better part. Here's the even better part. Um, they all want to be baptized that day. How are you going to baptize 3,000 people in a day? It's a lot of water. Huge, huge logistical issues. A lot of these people are needy. A lot of these people are, they're coming from situations in life where they don't have the food they need. And any source they had, the moment they accepted Christ, that source was cut off. They are now isolated from whatever source they had. Who are they going to turn to? Sherry. No, Sherry was there. Yeah, they need to be fed. Huge logistical issues, right? Are they ready for any of this? Absolutely not. Who is? The Holy Spirit. What of any of this surprises the Holy Spirit? None of it. He sees it all coming. He sees it all coming. They were not ready, and either are we. Either are we. The simple task of confronting the old self is, is above and beyond my pay grade. I need help. Anything I would intend to do of any lasting spiritual value is above my pay grade. But the Holy Spirit is present. So our task, learning from the examples of the text we've seen this morning, our task is simply to learn to daily lean upon Him and minister out of his presence, which we will discover as we get farther in the text, is absolutely internal, absolutely personal, and absolutely continuous. A constant abiding presence. How do we learn how to do that? Well, first thing is, ask him. How many are comfortable? You don't have to raise your hand are comfortable praying to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I need you today. That one rolls off our tongue like water. Try this one. Holy Spirit, I need you today. That one feels kind of weird, doesn't it? It just doesn't naturally... We identify with Jesus more readily because he had bodily human form. There's no, you know, he probably doesn't look like the paintings. He still is a man. He's a human. The Spirit, what do we do? And yet, it's absolutely essential 
that we learn to be able to do that. I would suggest, and again, this may sound really weird, but I would suggest in your prayer time, if you've never done anything at all like this, introduce yourself to the Holy Spirit in your prayer time. It's going to seem so weird. Holy Spirit. My name is John. I feel really weird because you've been part of my life for like 30 years now, 40 years now, whatever the number in your life. You've been part of my life for like decades now. And I've never actually had a direct conversation with you. Okay, let's have one. My name is John. Nice to meet you. It actually isn't weird at all. You know, if, if you're saved, if you've made Christ your Savior, you can be absolutely sure that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Paul says in Romans, if any man does not have the Spirit, he is not Christ. To be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is the best functional definition I can come up with for what is a Christian. It's not a matter of having the right doctrine. That's important, but that isn't the definition. Being dwelt by the Spirit of God is what makes us a child of God. So introduce yourself. Establish it. In fact, you have made Christ your Savior. If you haven't, then you need to deal with that first. That is your first crisis. Talk to Pastor George or myself after service. I'm glad to talk to you about that. Introduce yourself and then ask him, the Holy Spirit, for help. And the first thing I would suggest you ask for is to say, Holy Spirit, I'd ask for your help in making me comfortable in asking for your help. Spirit of the living God, even though my, I cannot wrap my brain around the fact that you dwell within me, because your word tells me that's true, I have to believe it, and so I'm going to ask for your help in getting comfortable with that idea, being okay with that idea, and leaning daily upon you for your help in my life. I'm going to call that this week assignment. You can call it that. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And it is, Father, um, it's such a challenge for us to get a lot of these things in our mind. First of all, Father, we don't come from that mindset of a first century Jew. So a lot of these things, they're still, you know, they're not our world. Father, our world is so concrete. Our world is so material. We are so focused on that which we can see, taste, touch, smell, those things which we can, you know, they're, they're part of our physical world. When we begin to think of things that are of the spiritual realm, we can sometimes, you know, kind of want to go, you know, I just, that's just not what I'm into. Well, actually, that's what you are into, Lord, and, and that's what we need to be. So I pray, Father, through this week, as we are all, um, just mulling over these things, thinking about these things, praying about these things, and acting on these things, there would be that place where we make the conscious choice to open the door of our hearts, the door of our conscience, Lord, to the presence, the power, the actions of your Spirit, indeed pointing us to the person and work of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.